1: I'm live on the scene here as the giant spaceship which has been hovering over western Pennsylvania for three days is setting down. Life forms are emerging and I believe we're about to see first contact between them and the United Nations representative.
2: Greetings astral travelers. I bring you a gift of air fresheners. They're shaped like little pine trees which are pleasant things that grow here and look judging from the smell coming out of that thing you're going to want all of these for the trip back. We do not want this gift. We evolved beyond the sense of smell millions of years ago. What do you want? We want to know if these are the Jethro Tull albums. Robot, show them our collection. Okay, let me just flip through. Minstrel in the Gallery, Songs from the Wood, The Broadsword and the Beast. I mean, you've got all 21, plus the vinyl EPs. March the Mad Scientist, that one is hard to get. And let's see, do you have the Japanese bootleg? Eight twenty-eight seventy-four 2874 with Locomotive Breath at the end. Yes, but my cousin borrowed it and he never brings it back. Then I would say, yeah, you have everything. Then we will leave. Wait, I mean, aren't we going to have a scientific and cultural exchange? You have nothing else that we want. You prog rock guys are such snobs. Stupid girl. Go back to your Billy Joel collection. Okay, that is just so wrong. Music should be a force that reaches across galaxies to unlock our respective mysteries about existence. Like on all those Yes album covers. Also, I don't like Billy Joel, but perhaps the discussion of prog rock is the best we can hope for. And now the guy who thought el was a utility, Colin McEnroe.
3: Right. So uh, I will just lay my cards on the table here, so to speak, and say that, you know, my story uh, does begin sometime in the early 1970s. I mean, not my whole story, uh, but my story about this um, begins in sometime in the early 1970s. And, and there, there were these Yes albums and they had these Roger Dean uh, covers that were very mysterious and intriguing and suggested this kind of Promethean secret that might be imparted through this music. And then the music itself was, I think it's fair to say, different from other stuff that anybody was listen, listening to at that moment. And it kind of led to an awful lot of time. And I feel like as we go through this today, that people's cars may be involved a lot. In my case, it involved riding around a lot in the back of Jimmy Alderman's copper-colored Pontiac Le Mans, where he had an eight-track player in the front, when where we would listen to yes and King Crimson and McDonald and Giles, which is what you listen to if you really thought King Crimson had gotten a little too commercial, um, and um, and stuff like that, and and Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and we just thought it was freaking awesome, um, and and maybe it still is, uh, it, it very possibly still is. Uh, one of the questions that we're going to have today is how uh, prog rock has hel- held up, how progressive rock has held up. But you know, as I got into Jimmy Alderman's copper-colored Pontiac Le Mans with the A track player. Here's basically what I heard. I think you get the joke. <laughs> I just want to say, possibly worsening the whole experience, and I don't mean to indict anybody else or sound like Bill Clinton, but I was the only person in that particular car who was not high on the marijuanas. <laughs> um, and I feel like being high on the marijuanas may have been kind of essential to really fully uh, appreciating this. So the person you hear in, in the background is John Dankosky, executive editor of New England News Collaborative and ho- host of The Wheelhouse, which is tomorrow. Uh, and next, on WNPR, which is Thursday. Uh, and he is also, it says here in the introduction, a huge nerd who intentionally listens to Rush. And yes, I didn't write that particular introduction. <laughs> uh, also joining us from uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, is David Weigel, who's the author of The Show That Never Ends, The Rise and Fall of Prague Rock. So um, before we bring uh, David Weigel aboard, uh, John Dankowski, you're hearing this music. Uh, not only are you are hearing this music, but you are seeing <laughs> sitting there with the album cover in question right in front of you. So you have that with you. I do. And many other album covers besides, I might add. Yes. And so what did this music mean
1: to you at the moment that you went through the gateway towards it? Well, I'm glad you started with your story, Colin, because my story started 10 years after that, thereabouts. So it's in the 1980s. This music that you were riding around in the back of a car listening to in the early 70s was music that was not of my time, right? So we were listening to something different on the radio in in the 1980s. And I was part of a group of sort of outcast high school kids who felt like what was normal wasn't fun, and so we were going to attach ourselves to something not normal. And what could be more not normal than music that feels like it's science fiction, it feels like it's fantasy? Um, My gateway drug into this world was was Peter Gabriel as the frontman of Genesis, wearing costumes and singing songs that sort of made me think of the Chronicles of Narnia in a way that probably I should have grown out of by the time I was 14 or 15. But that's where I was at the time. And it all felt like a world that was was my world specifically because no one else and certainly no girls in my high school cared anything about (laughs) whatsoever. And and that's really how I got into it. And I stayed there for a, a lot of my life. So let's uh, fast forward to the present. Uh, And David Weigel, uh, your
3: book begins with that was, by the way, the music that we're hearing was from Close to the Edge uh, by Yes. Your book begins with uh, a cruise, a cruise to the edge. Uh, Tell us about the cruise to the edge. Who's on that cruise and what are they trying to get out of it?
4: Yes, it's not just a clever pun. Well Yes, we're on the cruise, actually. Yes, we're the headliners. They still are the headliners in a version of the cruise that, that goes on every year. I went on uh, the cruise in 2014 with uh, Yes and Marillion as the co-stars and a, a group of less famous progressive rock acts, uh, young ones who were super interesting with like Moon Safari from Sweden. And then... Variations on 70s classic groups that had reconfigurated, uh, like Gentle Giants spinoff group Three Friends. And it was just several days, and I I went in not wanting to be jokey and ironic, because it's just one of the easiest tropes in journalism, easy but expensive, to go on a cruise and make fun of it. It actually was this enlightening, embracing uh, experience. I, I, I don't know where else I would have gone to see Mayan Ruins and Cozumel with Edgar from Tangerine Dream, but, but for this cruise. And and days and days of being with people who lived and breathed this music were really informative for how I wrote the book. I, I already was about halfway done the book at that point, but I, I thought about things anew after that that experience. Who
3: who was on this cruise? I mean, and by by that I mean I, I think I can sort of guess the age group, although John Dankosky would skew a little bit Young, I'm assuming for that for the age group. It's probably people. I, I'm in my early sixties, uh, um, uh, and I'm white. Um, <laughs> you, <laughs> just, you're a man. I, I'm a man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, is I, I, and I would add, and and because I think there's a little bit of class consciousness in this whole story. I'm college educated too. And I just feel like I've now described the demographic. But then that's the kind of jokey sardonic um take that we're trying to avoid here David Waggle. So who was on the cruise?
4: Well, it was a bit you know, older than me. I I'm, I'm 36 now as of as of a couple months ago. Uh, I was one of the I'd say a skewing younger uh, members of the cruise. Average age maybe was more like 40 46 to 50. Uh, and Really talented musicians. Uh, there were some people who were kind of like me, anoraks, who just liked the stuff and wanted to sit there and nod our heads as, as we listened. Uh, there are people who have learned learned from these musicians, write their own music. Uh, a thing I write about in the book that I, I found to be kind of powerful in the way I didn't expe- expect were these nightly... Uh, Cover bands that would play in one area of the ship, where some you could you could cover a Yes song, and Chris Squire from the bassist from Yes, who's unfortunately passed away, would walk out and listen and uh, nod approvingly at at how faithful and talented these people were. But guys who maybe they're just a hobbyist in their garage, maybe they were with some bands that never quite made it. One guy was a four-hire kind of wedding band player who then would just go in and completely shred these solos on songs like Gates of Delirium, which are not easy parts to play. And uh, I just came away. I already appreciate the music, obviously. I was writing the book by that point, uh, but I just came away with this appreciation for a, a devotion to the craft of the music and the, the experimental nature of the music. You don't see with other rock super fans. So no, no patch on you know the person who goes to every Bruce Springsteen concert. Uh, but they, there's there's a little there seem to be more headbanging and singing along to lyrics, less picking apart how the stuff works and playing it yourself.
3: Well so John this is a a big point about progressive rock I think which is that you can really enjoy Bruce Springsteen or any number of artists and knowing a lot about time signatures chord changes and things like that won't really deepen your appreciation of their work that much, but it seems to me that the people who really enjoy progressive rock, or people who know a lot about music, have learned, as David says, a lot about music through immersion in progressive rock. That there's a way in which that's kind of a feedback loop too.
1: Yeah, yeah, you you want things that are complex that people, normal people, just can't play. The the idea that anybody could pick up a guitar and play that the the ethos behind punk is something that the prog rock fan kind of rejects this notion that if it's easy then we can put our emotions into it is less important than the idea of of something that has complexity and is going to set you apart in some way now not all the music that we're going to talk about today is all that technically complex but a lot of it, that's really its hallmark. I will say, as a, as a high school kid who listened to this music and then tried to play it, I ended up being much more the Dave Weigel sitting and listening and nodding my head. I tried like hell with my friends to play Rush and King Crimson and, and Yes! songs, and we just weren't anywhere near good enough. But we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, what our album cover would look like if we had an album we just didn't work that hard to actually try to play the music (laughs) (laughs) so i want to talk a little bit more about this but john i also just want to maybe you can uh, help me set this thing
3: up because i'm sure david is going to have a lot to say about it too but um there's a way in which yes Like I really liked Yes and I had all these albums and and Yes like had sort of top 40 hits and stuff like that. There's a way in which there was a little bit less than met the eye to Yes and a little bit – a way in which ultimately they didn't fully subscribe to the progressive rock ethos, which I think is sort of about this intellectual and, and, and musical connoisseurship approach to music and popular tastes be damned.
1: Yeah, and I I really love Dave's thoughts on this, but I I think that one of the things that that I really take away from the book is just how, yes, was always kind of chasing money. Uh, they always were a little bit too big and a little bit too grand for their ability to to draw a crowd, and they'd break up and they'd reform. But I think that some of the worst tendencies of progressive rock were all kind of embodied in this time period between uh, the Close to the Edge record that we listened to and the next thing that they attempted to put on vinyl, Tales from Topographic Oceans, which I think David talks about in quite some detail in the book as being this sort of meandering, wandering, amorphous thing that neither the band nor the audience really wanted to hear. And and I sort of think about that um, that Spinal Tap quote about there being a very fine line between clever and, and stupid. And I think that that's really what what Yes was always walking at that at that time.
3: Right there, there is I, I don't know, uh, David Wygala. There's sort of a a two tier system here in a way, and and the other tier, and maybe we'll come to it in just a second, is is different from yes. There there are people who are part of this world who just wouldn't be caught dead on a cruise ship in okay. 2017.
4: Yeah, there are people like Robert Fripp and there are some of the rock and opposition guys from Henry Cow. I don't, I don't think Fred Frith would be on this. There were musicians who did not like uh, what progressive rock came to entail and what the description came to mean and th- rejected the idea of there even being a description. Uh, they preferred even if they didn't prefer the terms they, they didn't like the categorization. The people who got along with car- categorization I found uh, a couple people did it in real time more people did it afterward when it was kind of a useful qualifier for what kind of music you 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 made. Packaged by radio, packaged by critics, and if you're in a position, a lot of these artists uh, come, you know, 2014, 2015, 2016. You're just trying to get gigs to to make money, so you're happy to assign yourself that label. But a lot of musicians really dislike the label. I mean, I kept a um, a pretty big uh, net. I threw over all of this to I inc- incorporate Mike Oldfield, I inc- incorporate Krautrock, a lot of things. And I have I, there are people who have um, gently criticized the book, uh, not reviewers, but fans who fans of the music uh, who who think I should have cast an even wider net uh, but that's a, <laughs> a debate I didn't really get it want to get into I the the fans I, I talked to talked to in the book that, that, that was more my focus group of, of people who were devoted to this music for decades uh, and and like we you know having a different debate over whether This or that piece of of music now is progressive. It was the people, it was the music that started in the late 60s and what grew out of that for the next couple decades, kind of tapering off when some of these artists began to pass away.
3: You know, John, I think there's also a little tension between commercial success and. An uh, artistry that also surfaces, well, I, first of all, I think this form was po- partly made possible by something called AOR, album-oriented rock. There was kind of a revolution in radio that sort of said, well, now this big FM band has opened up. We don't just have to pe- pay, play three-minute singles anymore. We can play all kinds of stuff, including stuff that's people who've never heard before, pe- stuff that's way too long to go on uh, other formats. And, and, and although that format commercialized pretty quick, quick, there was a period of time where that notion too of what a song was was kind of changing.
1: It, it was, and I think that that still shows up today. I mean, in the in the classic rock radio of today, it, it's still quite possible to turn it on and hear Roundabout from Yes's Fragile album. It's very. Uh, it's regular that you'd hear Jethro Tull, um, not so regular that you'd hear some of the other bands that uh, David outlines, including, I think, the band that many prog rock fans look to to be the the top of the heap and probably the heroic elements of, of David's book, King Crimson. I mean, you don't hear King Crimson songs on... Album-oriented rock radio back then, for the most part, with some exceptions, and you really don't hear them in classic rock radio now, but you know that's because they were after something else. They were after something that was a little bit more artistic and a little less commercially driven.
3: You know where you hear them? Right here. I bought this album when it came out. Um, <laughs> and we listened to the in Jimmy Alderman's mm-hmm. Copper Colored Pontiac Le Mans as well on A track So, Dave Weigel, say why it is. I mean, I think John has articulated, uh, well, both of you have talked a little bit about, you know, the difference between these two bands. But maybe say a little bit more, uh, David Weigel, uh, about King Crimson and what they do epitomize.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, King Crimson were among the bands I discussed that didn't like any kind of labels. They, they started as a project of Robert Fripp, Greg Lake, who's here you hear on vocals and bass on this track. Bill Burford is, uh, sorry, not Bill Burford yet. Uh,
1: Michael Giles.
4: About Michael Giles on drums. Uh, and...
3: Were you just like lost in a fog of... Of king crimson memories right there
4: <laughs> no sorry I, I i just the reason i was i was late um for this interview uh, caught up with me which was okay. that I, I woke up at four to get a to plane <laughs> that was de- that was that was delayed to get here um can you ask the question again
3: well john without the benefit of liner notes can uh can also uh walk us through this so i'll let you uh compose yourself from your jet lag i mean yeah so robert fripp is sort of the key name here though right
1: robert fripp is the guitarist and the mastermind behind uh king crimson and at the start This was a band. It was a band that was somewhat put together out of bits and pieces, but it was, when it first burst onto the scene, a really big thing, even sounding as heavy and weird and strange as that in the midst of a lot of uh, free love and psychedelia in the late 1960s. But Robert Fripp became the only consistent member of King Crimson, and it really stopped being about being a band, and it started being about Robert Fripp and what he likes and doesn't like. Um a, a very good part of the story, I think, for a lot of people to understand is that after Yes became uh, very popular and after they got an awful lot of album sales and uh, they'd sold a lot of records, their drummer, Bill Bruford, as as David said, left Yes. He was basically recruited by uh, Robert Fripp to come into a new King Crimson because he wanted to do something new and turn it into a new kind of band. That song that we heard, Colin, it's like a template for a certain type of music that people really still love today and it's sort of my contention. I think David traces back the history of prog rock a, a bit earlier to Prokol Haram. But this is, I think, the the first real thing that ever happened in prog rock, t- 21st century schizoid, man, it's probably also the best, which maybe sets us up on a little bit of a weird path to have the pinnacle of something also be the very the first thing that ever happens. You know, there's so much I want to get into here, and, uh, but the show is flying by like a
3: Rick Wakeman keyboard solo. Um, <laughs> No, it actually is flying by. Unlike a Rick Wakeman keyboard solo, so. But but you know, there's a, there's a, I think there's some other things going on here. I want to mention a, two or three of them. Uh, and um, but I guess before we do that, just so that we can make the argument uh, or discuss the argument that this music, in fact, because it blew away all kinds of boundaries, it really kind of opened the landscape up. Uh, the Roger Dean landscape up for all kinds of other experimentation that survives and prospers even today So let's hear Kanye West
4: Music,
0: no
5: one
3: Although David waggle I think it, it's fair to ask Does this represent some kind of recognition by Kanye West of a a musical thread running from Robert Fripp to him? Or is that just a really cool phrase to drop into (laughs) your song?
4: I I think it's a good sample. He's never explained the sample. I I will say that I emailed him through all the channels I knew to try to figure out why he sampled this and he never got back to me. Uh, He also samples john anderson's vocals on a mike oldfield song on a different on the first track on this album he went through a very micro progressive rock period before (laughs) going totally in their direction i mean his next album is much more minimalist uh there there are the strains of this stuff throughout music and there's one thing i didn't get into the book as much as i wanted frankly i I researched it and i put put a bit, bit in a lot of this music survived as samples doing something very specific and not just kind of Breakbeats or little snatches of funk songs that that you hear in a lot of hip hop, but as really spacey, unique sound soundboards for bands like De La Soul, uh, for for Kanye West in that in, in that circumstance, uh, I, tales of topographic oceans, which is this almost impenetrable yes album with really beautiful <laughs> sections, uh, I've I've heard spritzed across hip hop. You know, and but and and not many of these bands would talk about. It. The only people I I did some of the producers. Uh, sorry, Mr. DJ, who's a producer for Outcast, one of the guys I talked to, and it's just the same thing going through the record bins, but going through them without prejudice, without saying, well, this 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 music is a genre I'm I'm going to stick away from. Uh, I I think I, I think there there's a lot more opportunity there for this because this, just sonically the, the the things that these bands do with. Uh, with tempo, with time signature, with, with electronics, really early on, before a lot of, of fun, you know, Funk is even picking them up. Uh, I, I hear a lot of it and wonder why people aren't ripping it off more. And I guess, I guess it's that it, it, it's not danceable. It, it takes a little more uh, insight. It takes a brain like Kanye West to figure out how to make a hook out of something that is so challenging and not, not lending itself to a frug.
1: Well, why I'm I'm so happy that you played that column, though, too, is it's also true that if you went into my high school in the 1980s amongst progressive rock fans, we would reject the idea that we could listen to hip-hop, right? That, that wasn't part of our vocabulary. We were defining ourselves at the time based on a type of music that had pretty strict boundaries around it, and we could tell you what the boundaries are, and we knew that those boundaries didn't include country-western music, they didn't include hip-hop and, and some other things, just that... that Hip hop artists and others have embraced it and said, Yeah, it's really cool for us to use in our music. Probably teaches us a lesson we probably should have learned.
3: <laughs> All right. So we're going to take a quick break here. I got tons more questions. And by the way, uh, towards the end of the show, you're going to meet somebody who's uh, still creating a new Prague rock, somebody from a-, a band around here who's uh, still loving this style. But uh, before that, we have other things to say. Let's take a break and uh, let's go out with a little Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Perhaps I should explain, you should pardon the expression, the genesis of this show, uh, which is that um, David Weigel had, had written, it turned out, he, he wrote a book about progressive rock. The minute we heard about this book, The Show That Never Ends, uh, The Rise and Fall of Prague Rock, uh, we realized it was a chance to do a show with John Dankowski about an obsession of his. I think it's fair to call it an obsession in the sense that he's (laughs) sitting there with all the album covers (laughs) stored in their little plastic cases uh, that was well known around the station, perhaps not that well known uh, out there in the rest of the world. So uh, that's one of the reasons we're doing this. So, David Weigel, when we talk about progressive rock, and this is something you do uh, deal with in the book. You know, like the Beatles in 1967 are essentially a progressive rock band, except they can't be a progressive rock band because I think there's sort of a chain of custody problem. Right. You you can't have been this incredibly popular band in 1965 with people screaming while you played and pretty girls flinging themselves at you because you've mastered the pop idiom unlike anybody else, and then be a prog rock band, right? You you have to ha- have always lived on that Roger Dean planet.
4: <laughs> uh, and Roger Dean's role in this, the designer of the, the Spacey Yes covers, uh, I, I give credit to it but and because th- that did capture progressive rock at its peak the, the the super artistic hypnosis covers the hr guy for guy cover for elp etc uh, that that was like one vector of progressive rock but the way i kind of frame it for the book is that any rock that grew out of british garage mod music that kind of absorbed psychedelia and then went somewhere else it, it couldn't have gone anywhere so gen genesis started as, a, as quite a poppy uh, chart-friendly band, band uh, with the minor with the minor problem that they don't have any hits at first, uh, and and then become much more experimental. Yes, start off as sounding a, a lot like just the Who with with more bass in the lead. If you had John Entwistle lead the band instead of uh, if you had Pete Townsend, and, and they keep experimenting. So people kind of started in much of the similar similar place, and then went in these wild directions. But the the ones who define the ethos that did have this kind of this very specific kind of int- uh, intricate and extraterrestrial art that made it easy to identify. Uh, and the concerts were like that, too. I mean, the the, the early concerts, or by early I mean like 66, 67, 68, uh, these bands were part of long psychedelic all-night raves and be-ins, right? And by the early 70s, these bands are the sensory experiences where you show up and you're listening to quadraphonic sound inside an arena or you're... You've got uh, a light show in the case of Hawkwind, a light show in the case of King Crimson. They're just experimenting with what becomes a lot of arena rock uh, in a more structured way. Like if you go see a YouTube concert now and see the various... Things going across the LED screen, um, these bands kind of did that first. So the things that that you might scoff at, uh, the way they're the way they're packaged, the way the, the these these covers that look a bit odd forty years later, that was part of a presentation that was extremely influential on in how all of rock and then you know hip hop too, how all of it uh, presented itself.
3: But I think also, John, you know, there's this. Um, actually, if people wonder what we talk around about around here in the newsroom at WNPR. We had like a 15-minute conversation about Phil Collins the other day. So, And I think (laughs) Phil Collins is an interesting case in point. So he was the drummer for Genesis, then Peter Gabriel leaves, he becomes the front man, and as uh, David recounts in his book, he then eventually has a solo career where he's incredibly popular. And then people start, like cool people, or maybe not so cool people, people uh, who have some investment in all the stuff that we're talking about right now, start making fun of him and looking down their noses at him. And I think... correct me if I'm wrong, but I think some of this was not that it became popular, but he became popular with the wrong people. It became popular with people who also (laughs) thought Billy Joel was really cool, and he couldn't be forgiven for that.
1: Well, a lot of the bands that uh, David talks about in the book, uh, bands like Rush, that I know you don't want to spend too much time on, Colin, because I know you have an aversion to Rush. But Rush was essentially popular in their way for 40 years. I mean, they, they could still, they've retired, but they could still sell out concert halls. And so their fans never abandoned the fact that they would try to put out a new record and and sell albums and be popular in their way. Phil Collins went to another type of music. He defected from prog rock uh, after changing the sound of the band that he grew up in. And so a lot of fans couldn't forgive him for that. And he went so far into the pop side that it became a, a, a joke to people. I will just say that if you listen to Phil Collins' music from the 1980s in isolation, he was a really great pop Songwriter, He's had some amazing hits, and if you take him away from what he did with or to Genesis over time, um, I think his work could stand on its own. But the fact is, we remember the fact that he was the drummer singing background vocals uh, during Supper's Ready in the early 1970s with Peter Gabriel wearing a flower costume on his head. And you think, that's where that's where I want my Phil Collins to be. I don't want my Phil Collins to be standing in front of a band with a bunch of horns.
3: Just to concretize this, let's hear a music box, uh, somewhat early Genesis. That's from 1971, and I picked it because we actually now, according to our metrics, have 71 li- listeners left <laughs> listening to this radio show. Uh, no, that's absolutely not true. So, um, this, uh, David Weigel, this this movement, this progressive rock, prog rock movement, it kind of does come in waves. And we've really kind of, for the most part, only been talking uh, about that first wave. Um, what's the second wa- wave? Can you describe what that is? And, and are they just basically... Guys who grew up listening to the first wave and thinking, "Hey, I think I want to do that too."
4: Well, to an extent, I mean, there's this kind of wave and a half with with Rush in the in the late 1970s, uh, with Camel. There, there are bands that that are not quite contemporaries. The band members were teenagers when these bands were were, were touring, uh, but they're inspired by that and they're inspired by heavy by heavy metal and by other other things. Like, uh, and then you've got the 80s with the second wave. I uh, have Marillion, uh Pendragon, a. a, a not just a, a kind of flowering of new bands, uh, but a new gradient of this music, but in progressive metal, which, which takes a while to get going. Uh, and then a new fan base that surprises people. So one character in the book really is the media. Uh, it's probably, I write what I know. I've only ever worked in media, but, uh, going back through how the press covered this music from the sixties through the, through, through 2000 or so, uh, The the turn in the press was really hard. It was really... uh, This music was condemned completely... In most uh, rock media, starting around 1977, and when Marillion and these bands come back, when uh, some some more more experimental metal bands come come back, they have huge followings right away, and the press doesn't quite know what to do with it. Uh, there are fun reviews of the horror uh, the uh, writers for New Musical Express and, and Sounds have when they see how popular Marillion is playing these 17 you know, minute songs inspired by Beowulf. And sounding a lot in the in the beginning, just a lot like Genesis, it wasn't clear why this music had found a new following. It was thought to be pretty pretty well buried by that point. The, the progressive bands that that had existed, uh, like uh, the King even when King Crimson comes back, it's it's an art- artistic band, but it, it is a bit more danceable. Uh, members of Emerson, Lake and Palmer after they break up, uh, <laughs> Carl Palmer joins Asia, which is a F- you know, very uh, forward-facing uh, corporate rock band. Um, we we've barely discussed yes, which also becomes very poppy and corporate band. Uh, so these bands that were more faithful to to the original to, to the '70s sound uh, are, are confusing to a lot of people. Um, and 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 they they don't all stay in that mode either. I mean, I I, I think the the least interesting stuff I found in this uh, and all this research and all this listening were the bands that just only try to sound for all time like it's 1972. Uh, Most progressive rock bands, no matter when they started, end up trying to evolve in a different direction.
3: I, I, there's I, there's so much there, uh, John Nankoski, including—we actually have the newest Merillion song here. And by the way, Merillion was probably the most popular of this whole second wave group. And you're sitting there going, but I never heard of them, to which we say,
2: yes. <laughs> Not the band, yes,
3: but yes, you never heard of them. Because this really was—I mean, there's a way in which they're kind of all marking themselves out in a certain way. They've got these names that either come from, you know, King Arthur or obscure <laughs> Tolkien work. Or and, and they are kind of saying yes, we belong to a completely different culture from you guys. So what?
1: Well, uh, I was looking for the Marillion album to, to bring in to, to show you here, and I, I couldn't find it in my in my collection. What? But when you when you, when you when you try to describe that a band that you were listening to uh, growing up that you loved Marillion, and they say, well, "What was the name of your favorite record?" and you say it was um, "Script for a Jester's Tear," people immediately tune you out and think, "Okay, there's something or beat you up." There's. and they take your lunch money. And I think that that's part of the problem, right? Now, Marillion has evolved over time. Their lead singer, uh, who helped to found the band, left, and they've maintained and and put out more pop-oriented music. And i got to say... I don't really keep up with what Marillion is doing these days. There's a lot more interesting music in the world than what Marillion is up to uh, in 2017. But their first couple records, I I still love them, and I I put them next to my Genesis records because that's the place they occupy in my brain.
3: All right. Well, let's hear what Marillion's doing right now. That's B2 right there.
0: our white eyes aren't naive they're a product of a conscious decision
3: I can say with some confidence that we'll never play Marillion at WNPR <laughs> ever again. Uh, so you were here for history being made in a way. Um, we have to make two quick points here. and We don't have a lot of time to wish to do it because I want to bring these young musicians in here to be part of this. So one of them, David Weigel, is, I mean, in a way, although punk is a rebellion against everything, there's a way in which probably punk is specifically a rebellion against a form of music that is so reliant on expertise, you know, uh, that, that places expertise and musical acumen above every other possible value. To what degree did, as a kind of counterreaction, did prog rock beget punk?
4: Uh, I think you put it pretty well, and uh, I go back to the critics. Critics were really raring for something to blow up progressive rock, and they embraced punk for that reason. But when it comes to pretentiousness, I, uh, a lot of punk, uh, as simple as it was, as, as DIY and back to basics, uh, was also kind of kind of stru- it was very structured in what it was rebelling against, and a little bit art school. Uh, a lot of there were progressive bands who. Whose members were extremely working class, who resented the fact that ten years later these guys who went to much nicer colleges and got their got their uh, their art degrees came out with uh, this post punk music, punk and post punk music that was simple, and they they found atonal, but in in their minds much more pretentious, not not as pretentious, uh, not as big, stru- uh, musically, not as ambitious lyrically, uh, but, but a different kind of pretension. <laughs> Going back to basic that way, you're making a, st- a different kind of statement. Um, but uh, I think Greg Lake, who I, uh, who unfortunately has passed away, was one of the guys who resented this the most and just couldn't understand. Uh, he understood that not everything ELP was doing by 1978 was great. <laughs> None of them argued otherwise. <laughs> uh, but couldn't understand exactly why people did not see this con, that there was really... I'd almost use the word populist music that was still filling arenas and people flicking their lighters on that that really transported you for a couple hours. And then there's this stuff that was kind of clangy, uh, you know, songs about the government and not much interest beyond a, beyond a couple of, uh, of of minutes. Other people liked it a lot more. <laughs> people like Robert Fripp and King Crimson really enjoyed watching punk come along and blow this stuff up. And right. he's, he's living in New York for some of this and 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 actually completely inspired by electronic and this this deconstructionism. And that's what I mean. There, there's a lot of multitudes contained in what we say is progressive. Mm. So
3: we're, uh, we, we've we got to take a break right about here uh, just to have time for the, the final segment. But John Dancosky, we're going to go out with Fleet Foxes. Uh, and I think you make, to me, Fleet Foxes is sort of like if Simon and Garfunkel were born 10 years later and started a prog rock band, uh, <laughs> it would sound something like, but can you like in 30 to 45 seconds explain how you connect Fleet Foxes, which might be on a typical normal person's Spotify list, right now to the music we're talking about today.
1: If you listen to the the song structures of any of the Fleet Foxes records, uh, the the changing tempos, the the suite-like construction of the songs, certainly the orchestral tendencies, big anthems in the middle of these songs, and also some of the the lyrical content, it's a pretty straight line to some of the folkier prog rock of the 1970s that I love so much. It's one of the reasons that I I truly love this band, and I think that this is more of a follow-up to uh, the prog rock that I loved than some of the bands that that maybe would be on the cruise to the edge today. All right, here we go.
2: Robert Fripp announced his retirement in 2012, but he announced it in negative 916 time, which allows him to continue touring. Today's show was produced by Yarmouth Shipkey and me, Wellfleet Sylvester. Amanda Fish appears on Lark's Tongues and Aspic. Our intern is Sarah Bly. The part of Bill Curry was played by Rick Wakeman. And now. Back to Prog
3: Rock. Yeah, I should tell you that you make your pro- – I invented this this morning. You make your Prog Rock name. You pick a town on Cape Cod that's not Provincetown as your first name. And then your childhood pediatrician's uh, last name is your last name. That's your, uh, that's your Prog Rock name. <laughs> um, so the question would be, like, you know, would young people still want to play something like this? Uh, and uh, here uh, in the form of a song called Moonbase by 1974 is your answer. cut this off, but we won't have any time to talk unless I do. (laughs) So Adam Clymer and Parker, who are with us, uh, they play guitar and keyboards uh, respectively uh, in 1974, a prog rock band from Newington, Connecticut. So Adam Clymer, there's something about the name of your band that prevents people from making fun of you, right? Uh, no,
5: not at all. <laughs> we, uh, well, you've we, identified the issue anyway. Uh, we, very much so. We've we've gone back in the, so many times in the band. is I think we're split uh, almost down the middle between whether that's the most brilliant name anyone's ever come up with or whether it's the dumbest thing we've ever done. So <laughs> we will let the audience decide, I suppose. Right. It's the answer to the question,
3: what do you think this is, 1974? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> so, Parker, who tell, tell us... Uh, uh, Parker's joining us by phone, but tell, how does a person, a young person, find his or her way to this particular style of music?
0: Well, if you're asking me personally, um, I just like to listen to things, and if I like something, I follow it. But, uh, you know, I, I think that's actually um, how a lot of people stumble upon new genres of music or new artists or things like that is. I think everyone is born with a certain kind of sensibility that they're attracted to, that they like, you know, musically and, um, and they just find it. I, th- I mean, I think that's kind of how it goes.
3: How about you, Adam? Did you have a particular aha band or an aha moment where you thought, Oh, that's the musical direction I need to go into.
5: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I remember as if it was yesterday hearing Sergeant Pepper for the very, very first time. And I was young. I mean, young to the point where friends were listening to, uh, Sesame street and things. And, This was just one of those moments where it clicked, you know, and from the moment I went through school and and college and and all that, there was never a question in my world what I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it, and what I wanted to sound like. So coming into 1974 and and having the background of the Beatles and Yes and Pink Floyd and Kansas and Rush and all these, you know, the amalgam of what what we're calling prog rock today, um, it was just like it was meant to be if we could be a little... Weird about it <laughs> yeah.
3: and Parker you guys are comfortable with that name Prague rock I mean, I, I know it's also very cool to shrug off all titles and genres, but are you guys comfortable? V- belonging to that tradition
0: <laughs> um, I may be the wrong person to ask because this is actually a very new uh, genre of music uh, To me I actually only ever heard of that term when I was asked to audition for the band uh, four years ago Mm-hmm but uh, i think adam uh, has a pretty good sense of how the guys feel about it since they you know they've been really um, immersed in all of this music and the culture for such a long time. Did
3: they send you up to John Nankoski's barn and say, just take everything there, bring it home and listen to it, and then eventually you will understand what it is we're trying to do in this band? Hey, uh, David Weigel, you know, your, your book contains the subtitle Rise and Fall, so we're sort of post-fall now. I assume you're not surprised to find out that in the, the, you know, the fertile ground amid the rubble of the old prog rock, young people are finding uh, new stuff to do with it?
4: No, that was one thing I learned on the cruise and also I I just think rock in general stopped being the dominant form of pop music a, a while ago. I mean, I'm I'm 36, I think People in their twenties do not remember when the biggest band you'd see on uh, advertising a product or in the filling a stadium was, was a rock band. There's a couple left, but they're all hip hop and pop stars again. Uh, so it, it, it's kind of heartening that as people have rediscovered vinyl, <laughs> something as, simple as that. As and as as kind of rock has been flat, flattened and equalized. As, uh, 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 there's no. There's a little bit less. Uh, I think. Uh, freedom to follow a trend when everything is is kind of ar- archived when you're when you're going over uh rock history and there's not a lot of a new stuff so you've seen a lot of bands adopt 80s synthesizer sounds uh, and, and and put that forward into into pop music and you've seen re- really good i think experimental rock that you know maybe 10 years ago would it, it, back when or 20 years ago (laughs) when the goal was getting like the mtv buzz bin uh they would have been frowned upon but it's all it's all open now i mean there are people like uh ted leo has a new album that he he self-released who's pretty open about some of the progressive rock influences in how he writes what you might have otherwise called punk rock but all of rock is kind of uh, playing in the in, in the same I want to say sandbox. It's a little bit too minimizing, but it, it, it's it's the genres. I think been been evened out a little bit because. Uh, the, 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 rock in- the music industry has moved on to other things. And I, as, as somebody who li- listens to it, as somebody who goes to tons of concerts, I find it really exciting. And I find like the communities around this stuff to be mm. really supportive in a way that they weren't when, it was, when there's a little bit more uh, looking over your shoulder about hipness.
3: I should say, speaking of concerts, 1974 will be playing this Friday night, December 1st, at the Street Tavern in Hartford. And you'll see uh, John Dankosky leaning up against the wall in his George <laughs> Martin-like uh, role. How many people are in 1974?
4: Five of
5: us.
3: So you'd be the 6th <laughs> <1974 laughs> in
4: 1974.
1: Is, is there a little bit of, of tongue-in-cheek that you have to bring to being in a 2017 prog rock band? I mean, how much do you balance the earnestness with which you love this music and the fact that a lot of people are going to see it as, you know, a step back in time?
5: Well, t- to be honest, I, you know, we we do wear that moniker quite proudly, you know, prog rock and and, you know, with respect. You know, we say, yes, we're prog rock, but I think if you cornered any one of us, any one of the five of us, and, and started having a chat about what we do, what we are, and how we define ourselves, I think you'll see us kind of really beat around the bush be- before we start throwing that term progressive rock out there. Mm-hmm. Um I feel like we were more or less ordained with that. Uh, you know, I think there was a couple of reviews that came around that said these are progressive. This is the new progressive rock. And I said, uh, really? You know, <laughs> you know. I think in the sense of how we write our stories and how we write our music and stuff. Yeah, okay. A lot of influences and nothing's. You know, nothing gets thrown out. But. I want to have a little
3: time uh, to end with uh, something by 1974. This is Swan Song of the Enemy, uh, which everybody has been uh, dialing up on our request line to ask. We have a request line now uh, to ask for. It's just my parents. <laughs>
2: Progressive rock is really regular rock, and and we haven't progressed enough.